Remain standing, if you would, and grab your Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 21. And we will, uh, we're going to read our text this morning from there. Um, if you're here and you don't have a Bible, um, it, it's pretty easy to find. It's on the last page of the Bible. So, um, uh, but, uh, but we have, we have some Bibles that we've prepared for you. Uh, that you'll be able to uh, utilize. And so if you would, uh, grab those, are the, the blue Bibles in front of you, and you can look on page 603 in those Bibles, and you'll find uh, what we're about to read. Hey, and we always want to let you know, if you don't have your own Bible, by all means, take that Bible home as a gift. Uh, we want you to have the Scripture in your home, so by all means, keep that. But we're going to start in Revelation chapter 21, verse 1, and this is what we read there. And it's, by the way... In case you came in kind of dragging this morning or or a little crestfallen, let me tell you something. This is good news. Some of you act like you just didn't believe me at all. I'll try this side. Guys, this is really good news. This is awesome. This is great news. I, I used to, hey, good news, Randy. I'm telling you, this this is the kind of good news that if you hear it, it's going to set you free. This is great stuff. No matter where you're at in life right now, Here's what you need to hear. Verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Watch this. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I'm making all things new Also, he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end to the thirsty. I will give I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Now remain standing. We're going to put our statement of the consummation of all things on on the screen, and we're going to read this together out loud. So join me if you would. We believe in a hopeful future that expects the success of the gospel through the church and anticipates the full restoration of all creation, that the consummation of all things includes the personal, visible, physical, and glorious return of the Lord Jesus Christ 
the resurrection of the dead, the judgment of the just and the unjust, the separation of those outside Christ from the benevolent presence of God into enduring eternal punishment, while those who are righteous in Christ shall live in glorious bodies and reign with him forever, serving him and giving him unending praise and glory. Amen, amen, amen. You may be seated. Thank you for your word. Perhaps you recall, you know, some of you are at, the, uh, at the, the last leg of this race of life, but perhaps you recall the story of Cinderella. She was a girl who, once wealthy, was now oppressed and harassed by her wicked stepmother and her wicked stepsisters. And she was forced by them to do all kinds of menial tasks and degrading manual labor. One day, where they lived, the news was heralded in all the land that the king would be hosting a grand ball to find a suitable bride for the handsome prince. And all the maidens of the realm were requested to be there. But in their cruelty, Cinderella's family tries to keep her from going to the ball. They're so jealous of her beauty and charm. But after they leave, wonderful news, the girl's fairy godmother appears. And with a wave of her hand, a wave of her wand, she provides a stunning gown and beautiful glass slippers. She turns a pumpkin into a coach and a couple of mice into beautiful white horses to pull the coach. And Cinderella is off to the dance. But she's warned that the spell which transformed her will wear off at midnight. At some point... She must return home or risk exposure. So at the ball, immediately Cinderella captures the, the attention of the prince. His notice is fully transfixed on her and they dance and they laugh the night away. Soon they retire as, as couples do. They retire to the garden to be alone. And at the very moment that they are about to share their very first kiss, the bell strikes the first of 12 bells, indicating it's midnight. It's midnight. So Cinderella frees herself from the prince's embrace and dashes off before the spell can wear off and leaving nothing but a glass shoe shimmering in the moonlight. The end. Wasn't that a compelling story? Wasn't that great? I love that story. Were you satisfied with the ending? What? Why not? Why would you not be satisfied with that? If I were to guess, I would guess that it was missing the six critical words that make all fairy tales compelling. And they lived happily ever after. What good would the story of Cinderella be? What good it would be if you and I did not know that the, the prince went tramping through the village, knocking on doors, slip of trying to get a foot or a slipper to fit on a foot until he found his true love. What good would it be? What good would it be if Cinderella just goes right back home, returning to the drudgery of slaving away for her unjust stepmother? 
What if Cinderella and Prince Charming don't get married and ride into the sunset to fulfill their destiny of living happily ever after? It's not a very satisfying story, is it? Over the past 10 weeks, we've told you what Northridge Life Church believes, how all wisdom and authority is vested in the scriptures. Uh, we've told you of a father who planned your salvation, of a son who accomplished your salvation, of a spirit who applies your salvation. We spoke of how God regenerated you, making you alive when you were dead in your sins, alive in Christ. We told you of the gospel, which is the story that summarizes all of this information for mankind's benefits. We told you that Christ had inaugurated a kingdom that is expanding even now. And Pastor Dave last week told us about the church, the agency of that kingdom that consists of all believers functioning in the world as the body of Christ. But, but, it's wonderful and as good as all of that information is, it can be very, uh, just completely unsatisfying if to this story there is no happily ever a really important part of the story. You saw what happens when you leave it out. It's really important. Even the Apostle Paul acknowledged this when he spoke of one aspect of the church great of the church's great hope, uh, the resurrection of the dead. He said in 1 Corinthians 15:19, "If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied." He wanted us to believe in the reality of a happily ever after for the people of God. In fact, every single New Testament writer, with no exception, spoke of a preferred future where sorrow and sickness and sin and death would be done away with, where the righteous would shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. But they also speak of a time when the wicked, rebellious, and unjust will be punished, whereas the scriptures say the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever and they have no rest day or night. Two weeks ago, we talked about the already aspect of God's kingdom. I remember telling you that there was an already aspect to the kingdom and a not yet aspect. Well, today we're going to talk about the not yet aspect. We call it the consummation of all things. Completing the story by this story, the way this story ends, uh, the, the human history as we know it comes to a close. The devil's reign of terror ends and every last particle of sin is forever brought to a close. God is glorified and God's people are fully vindicated. Sounds like a pretty good end, doesn't it? Within theology, this topic that we're going to talk about today is called eschatology. All you need to know about that word is it, is it means literally the study of last things. Eschatology includes things like the return of Christ, the, the restoration of the created ordered, and the redemption of the saved and the judgment of the lost. This topic, like very few others, has historically been very, very controversial with a lot of debate concerning the relevant passages in the Bible. And much of that debate has been nothing short of uncharitable. It's like, believe like I do or you are a heretic. That's kind of how we, how we land on these things. So the way I want to do this today is I'm going to concern myself with focusing on six things that we can all agree on, hopefully. 
No matter your deeply held views on the subject of the end times. But before we begin, let me just clarify a few things up front. Let me lay down some house rules before you pull out your shanks and shivs and go after each other. Let me, let me, let me kind of clarify some stuff. First, I am not this morning going to try to persuade you to any particular eschatological position. I definitely hold one. I hold a position that I have crafted through much tears, much wrestling, much study, much counsel, much uh, uh, you know, necessary forced humility over the years. But there's no way that I can make a clear persuasive case for that or any other position in just one Sunday morning service. So because of that, I'm not going to tackle anything that's overly mysterious or overly disputable from the uh, from the book of revelation or the book of daniel or or passages like matthew 24 for example that means i'm not going to discuss the timing of the of the return of christ i'm not going to tell you set your calendars or set your watches mark your calendars for this particular date i'm not going to do that all right i i thought i'd hear an aw shucks out there or something like that I'm not going to be discussing the identity of the Antichrist this morning. I am not going to unlock the riddle of 666 for you this morning. I am not going to discuss the meaning of the various beasts of Daniel and Revelation for you this morning. A lot. This, this is why. Please listen to me. This is the thing I want you to hear about this whole message. There are a lot of people who, believe it or not, love Jesus just as much as you do who look at those things and may very well interpret them in a hundred different ways than you do. Did you hear me? Did you hear the first part that they love Jesus as much as you do? All right. A little tepid this morning, a little tepid response. So we're going to leave that for another time. Thank you. There you go. She gets the bonus of the day. So, um, what I'm, so what I'm going to devote our time to today is what we can agree upon. For anyone interested, I'm not trying to dodge any questions or any bullets. For anyone that is interested, I am what would be identified as an amillennial partial preterist. Now, when I say that, across this vast congregation, there were four responses. First of all, some of you are desperately trying to remember what I said so you can Google it. Second of all... There are some of you that were immediately convinced I'm a heretic. Thirdly, there's another portion of you who could not care less. And fourthly, there are people that think I I just may have spoken in tongues and are waiting for the, the interpretation of what I just said. But if any of you are genuinely interested to learn the specifics of what I believe and why... I would be happy at my own expense to buy you a cup of coffee and discuss it in a spirit of love. However, if you want to argue, that's okay too. I'll meet with you, but you're buying the coffee. (laughs) While I can't say that all eschatological systems are created equal, as a general rule, all Christians believe that the Bible has something to say about the end of the world. Everybody got that? Everybody agree with that? Uh, They they have this feeling about what's coming at the end. But as they say, the devil is in the details, right? 
I see it this way, you see it that way, another guy sees it that way. It's, it's in the details. How will the events predicted transpire? And what is the expected chronology? When I was younger, I often heard people say, who just wanted to avoid the, the, the discussion, the topic altogether, they would say, I am a pan-millennialist. I believe it's all just going to pan out in the end. Now, this may be a way, a strategy to dodge things that are difficult to interpret, but it really serves only to remove the happily ever after. If you don't talk about it, if you don't discover what the Bible says, doesn't mean that we all have to agree, but if we don't discover something about what the Bible says about the end, we're going to miss the happily ever after. We'll stop with a glass slipper shimmering on the stairway, right? So we got to know something about this stuff. The Apostle John, who wrote the book of Revelation, agrees in verse 3 of chapter 1 of that book. He says, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Blessed are those who hear. Blessed are those who keep what is written in it. For the time is near. It is very difficult to be blessed by reading, hearing, and keeping what is written in the book if we're determined to ignore it or avoid it because of fear or intimidation. So I encourage everyone, every one of you, to adopt a position on these things. Now, of course, if you're smart, you'll adopt my position. But if you want to adopt another one, that's okay. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Everybody relax. Um, I, I do encourage you to adopt a position on these things. And if you already have a position, have the courage to both read and study your own position as well as the positions of others, acknowledging, now here's a revelation, that you might not know everything. Surely not, right? And, <laughs> and as always, I'll duck. Uh, hey, if David can get away with talking bad about football, I can say that, right? So, and as always, remember, remember that no theological interpretation, no, no uh, uh, eschatological position, none of those things are infallible. Only this is infallible. Only this is absolutely perfect, coming straight from the mouth of the Lord God. And so as we study, we've got to figure out, is what we believe hold true to that? Because God's Word has to be the final arbiter of truth for the believer, not what I've been taught or what I think or what I saw in a movie. None of those things matter if they, if they don't line up with the Word of God. Can we at least agree on that? So as you study, do so with a teachable heart. If you're convinced of your position only because it's what you've been taught or what you've always believed, you're in just as much danger as someone who participates in a false religion, never looking at the, with a critical eye at the things that they have believed. What I'm saying is this. If you believe anything, if you believe Jesus died for your sins, you should know why you believe it. Is that fair? You should know it. You shouldn't just take my word for it. This word is full of information on why you should believe such a glorious truth as that. Don't take my word for it. That's why we want you to read the Bible together when we, when we gather together in his name. With all that stated, let's begin our list of the things we can agree on. First, I think we should all agree that the coming of the Lord will be unexpected. Mark chapter 13 verse 32 says this, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Can you just say that out loud for me? No one knows. There you go. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, nor the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when
when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge each with his work and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. Listen to what Jesus says. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Now, many people place great stock in the latest, quote, signs of the times, unquote. But the Bible's emphasis seems to be that Jesus' coming will be unexpected, taking people by total surprise. In 2,000 years, the church has not yet learned the importance of Jesus Christ's words concerning that day or that hour. No one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, nor the fa- but only the Father. Now, when I was, I got saved, I've told you the story multiple times, in 1987, I was 16 years old. And in 1988, almost exactly a year after I had gotten saved, a book was published. Some of you may remember it, a little booklet entitled 88 Reasons Why Christ Will Return in 1988. Spoiler alert, he didn't. So the author did the most logical thing imaginable. He published another book called 89 Reasons Why Christ Will Return, and I'm not making that up, in 1989. The late Harold Camping did the same thing a few years ago. It was 2011, 2012. Some people quit their job because of his predictions. Some people sold their houses because of his predictions. And they sat around twiddling their thumbs, waiting for Jesus to come back. And again, he did not come. When Jesus tells us in this passage that we need to stay awake and alert, he's not saying that we're to be distracted and obsessed with the moment of his coming. I can prove that. When Jesus ascended into heaven, do you remember the scene, Acts chapter 1? Jesus ascends into heaven. His disciples are all standing around, mouths wide open, eyes in the sky like this. And what the angels tell those men is he says this. They say, they say why do you stand here gazing? And there's been a whole generation since them that have done nothing but stand around gazing. He says, go do, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but go do what Jesus just commanded you to do. So church, to, to be aware and alert of his, of his coming doesn't mean to be staring up into the sky. It means you, be, you stay alert by doing what he commanded you to do. By reaching the lost and proclaiming the gospel, that's how you stay alert and ready for his return. Living lives of holiness. It's no different for us. Second, no matter what you believe about the chronology of the end, we're assured that one thing we can all agree on is that Jesus Christ will gather his people at the end, both living and dead. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 It's probably the best, clearest picture of this in the scripture. Paul is assuring the Thessalonian church and he says these words, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, 
will be caught up together to meet them, with them to, in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will always be with the Lord. This, my brothers and sisters, is the blessed hope that we all look forward to as Christians. Both the dead in Christ and we who are alive and who are left are assured that we will not be overlooked, but that we will be gathered to our Lord to be with him forever. Paul says that at Jesus' coming, he will resurrect all of his own, and then the end will come gloriously when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. Thirdly, at the end, Christ will finally, finally and and fully establish his kingdom. The kingdom that's been advancing since the time of his incarnation. I love the Old Testament prophet Daniel. And in, in his book, he looks forward to that day. And he says this, he says, and to him, meaning to Jesus, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. I'm telling you, this thing is going to go on and on forever. All resistance to the righteous rule of Jesus Christ will be squashed like a bug. And all praise and all worship will finally be lavished upon Jesus, the sole rightful recipient of worship in the universe. Our text referred uh, this uh, to this this morning when it spoke of a new heaven and a new earth, a new Jerusalem. I love the way uh, Peter puts it. He says, but according to his promise. Hey, did you know that Jesus has never broken a promise? Did you know that? Did you know that you're going to have a long wait if you ever are expecting Jesus to break a promise? It ain't ever going to happen. All of his words are faithful and true. It says, but according to his promise, we are waiting for, for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. It's where God says, as we read today, behold, I am making all things new. Are there things in this world that you're tired of? Are you tired of violence and warfare and hatred and perversion and all of those things? Guess what? God is right now in the process of making it all brand new. And one day his work will be completed. It'll be fulfilled. And we will be standing in an entirely recreated universe wherein righteousness dwells. Praise the Lord. Fourthly, we know that his kingdom will not. And this is the hard part. This part I wish was not true, but his kingdom will not be bliss for everyone because in this kingdom, God, who many of you have mocked, will sit exalted on his throne while the wicked fall on their faces in terror before his awesome and dreadful presence, waiting their just sentence. I'm telling you, if you, we are not a scare tactic church, but it's right there in the scripture. If you are not ready to meet Jesus, get ready. Because whether you want to meet him or not, you're going to meet him. And you can meet him on, on glorious terms or you can meet him on terrifying terms. But I assure you this morning, you will meet him. Listen to the, the, the terrifying words that John uses in Revelation to describe that moment. Just, in fact, let me read it to you. Shut your eyes and try to imagine this scene that John describes. He says, And then I saw a great 
white throne and him who was seated on it. And from his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead that were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. What a terrible day for those who have rejected Christ and continue to reject him, spurning his gospel. In my heart, I long for the day of my union with Jesus Christ. Everything in my soul says, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. But I shudder for those who will stand before God. Many of you in this room right now, naked, without excuse, withering under the weight of God's holiness. Jesus said, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both the body and the soul in hell. Even in his coming, fifthly, even in his coming, Christ will be seen by all. His return is not mythical. It's not metaphorical. It's not invisible. It's not merely spiritual. Rather, it's an actual significant event that affects and influences all creation. And it's perceivable to the five senses. Revelation 1 puts it like this. Verse 7, John says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds. Watch this next phrase. And every eye shall see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. That's like saying that all of those very boastful, loud atheists, all of those who have rejected Christ just for the, the, the pleasures of this life, all of those who have looked to false gods and false religions will look one day and see a wound-bearing Christ that, that has not come anymore to be their Savior but has come to be their judge. And they will wail on account for Him. Jesus said on a few occasions that you will see the Son of Man coming or sitting as a judge seated in in the clouds of glory. When Christ returns, let me make you aware that no one's going to miss it. No one's going to say, oh, that happened? I had no idea. No one's going to miss it. Even if they don't watch the news or log into Facebook, his coming is going to be worldwide and fully known. Announced, as we read in Thessalonians, with a piercing trumpet blast and the victorious shout of the archangel. Both the the righteous, both the living and the dead among the righteous will meet him in the air and they'll be by his side when he judges the wicked and rebellious who rejected him. Both the living and the dead. And every one of them will see him with their eyes. Lastly, number six, on that final day, The Lord's return will be glorious. We sang about it this morning. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, throned in rainbows and 
flashes of lightning and rolls of thunder. It's going to be something that you cannot even imagine, something that Hollywood could not come close to duplicating. It is going to be glorious. The creation itself, as we have always known it, will be dramatically affected. Listen to the way that the prophet Isaiah poetically depicted what is coming for us. He said in chapter 11, verse 6, he said, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. And the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fatted and calf together. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall pay, play over the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child shall put his hand in the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. What a day. Now listen, there was a lot about, you know, lions and goats and bears and cows and there's and there. And listen, this isn't an indicator of just some changes in the instincts and behaviors in the animal kingdom. But what Isaiah is telling us is that in that day, at the very most fundamental level, that there will be a promise of a lasting, God-ordained global peace. There will not be missiles and rockets and bullets fired at anyone anymore. There won't be acts of rage and passion and violence poured out on anybody anymore. Because the king will be enthroned and he will execute perfect righteousness and justice forever. And this isn't just something that's a fairy tale. It's coming. Jesus often referenced glory. I said his coming would be glorious. He often referenced glory when describing his coming. He said, talked of coming on the clouds of glory and coming in the glory of his father and the holy angels. His coming will be the most significant event of the future. I'm telling you, there are some of you that are putting a lot of hope in a lot of things that are coming. Maybe you're looking forward to graduating or getting married or retiring or whatever. All of those things fail to compare by a long shot to the glory that awaits the people of God when their Savior, their King, their Lord finally shows up. Kingdom will be glorious. Why? Because our glorious Savior makes it so. But what is so different about the coming kingdom that isn't true about the presence of God that we as believers experience right now? Because we tell you all the time, you should be walking in the fullness of the Holy Spirit and experience His presence. So how's it going to be different? Well, the Bible teaches that King Jesus will remain visibly present, enthroned and available to His elect redeemed on a renewed planet Earth for all eternity. Forever. Forever. When we, we read this earlier in uh, the, the passage from Revelation, he says, the dwelling place of God, that, that, that word is tabernacle, the, the tent of God will literally be with man and he will dwell with them. God will dwell with us and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Now, none of us have ever, the Bible tells us in John, have ever seen God. That period of time where, where that scripture says no one's ever seen God, let me tell you something, it's coming to an end. And someday we will all live out the rest of eternity in the visible presence of God. What a day. What a day. This is the great promise of the consummation. Everything points to that moment. It's the moment of completion for the church's mission of proclaiming the gospel to the nations. 
One of my favorite phrases in the statement that we read earlier is where it says that, that we believe in a hopeful future. As a child, if I can be really honest with you, I was terrified of the coming of the Lord. Absolutely just shaken in my boots, terrified. Because all I ever heard about from the church I was into, great church, good people, loved Jesus. But all I ever heard about on this subject was about a tyrannical worldwide leader. And I was told repeatedly that if I was unfortunate enough to be left behind, that unless I took that leader's mark on my body, I would be starved and tortured and executed. But if I did take it, I would be damned for all eternity. It was a classic case of damned if you do and damned if you don't. One way or the other, I was in big trouble, right? Right? The basic message was, try as we might, poor little hurting church, try as we might to preach the gospel and proclaim the righteousness of Almighty God. This world is going to hell in a handbasket and there's nothing we can do as believers except hold on tight behind the walls of the fort until Jesus comes at the last second to pull our collective rear ends out of the fire. Frankly, that doesn't sound too hopeful to me. It sounds terrible. It also wasn't a very helpful tool for evangelizing my lost friends either. Just like a one-sided turn or burn message that an evangelist might spew out, this avoid the antichrist and the mark of the beast theme might well serve to scare the living daylights out of my friends, but it rarely produced any lasting conversions once that initial fear wore off. What was lacking in that message was the absolute stunning majesty and beauty of Jesus Christ. That's what was missing. I never heard about that. I never heard that the king is coming to be enthroned among his people. I just heard, watch out because a really bad leader's coming. I missed the message of the beauty of Jesus, the glory of his sacrifice on the cross for human sin so that sinners might believe, might repent, might love him. Because you see, it's love that makes us obey. The Bible says that fear has torments, but love compels me to obey. My eschatology today is, if it's nothing else, it's completely hopeful. I long for the day that we just read about that Jesus will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more, and neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Have you had your fill of the former things yet? Have you? When I proclaim the gospel, I'm fully confident, 100% confident, that it is enough to change and transform this sin-depraved world and win new disciples for the glory of King Jesus. Isn't that the meaning of the passage that Dave and I both read to you in the last couple of weeks? Matthew 16, 18, On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Hell has no chance against the church of God armed with the gospel of God expanding the kingdom of God. Not a chance. That doesn't mean, hear me clearly, because you might say, well, what about this passage or what about this passage? Listen to me. I'm not denying those things. I'm not closing a blind eye to those things. This does not mean, everything I've said today doesn't mean that everything is going to be painless and carefree till the end. In fact, if you believe what Jesus said, and you should, he promised us that we would be hated, persecuted, arrested, and killed. That's what Jesus said. In fact, folks, it's hard to tell a middle-class suburban you know, American church this, but that is the normal Christian life. Hated, persecuted, 
arrested, killed. That is what most, the vast majority of our brothers and sisters in the Lord are experiencing this very morning. And yet we've dodged the bullet. We're the exception. We think that we're persecuted if someone serves our coffee in a red paper cup or warmly wishes us happy holidays instead of Merry Christmas. How dare they? Many of us have been pretty spoiled by the illusion of religious freedom. Illusion? Yes, it's an illusion because it could vanish at any moment and we'd be far more like our brothers and sisters around the world. It's an illusion because we think that we're health because we're healthy and that we can pay our bills mostly on time, that we're enduring in trial and that we're favored and blessed. But the fact of the matter is, and we've got to be honest about this, too often American Western Christians are just spiritually fat and lazy. Revelation chapters 2 and 3 contain seven amazing promises to the one who fully, truly conquers or endures or overcomes until the end. And remember that. Remember those promises next time you're in suffering. Remember, listen, here's the hopeful message of today. Remember that as it is, is not all there is. As it is, as you see it around you, is not all there is. On the last day, we're not going to be saved by the hair of our chinny-chin-chin. Jesus will bring this story to a beautiful, triumphant, awesome close. Can you trust him until then? Can you trust him until then? Can you trust him in the face of possible hatred, persecution, imprisonment, murder? Can you trust him in the face of those things? Can I make you a promise? The prince has left the palace. And at this very moment, at this very moment, he's traveling through all the realm, knocking on every door until he finds his true love. And that king and that pride That bride will live happily ever after. Praise God. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for the truth of your word. We're so thankful that you have rescued us. God, that you have prepared a kingdom for us. And Luke tells us that you said not to be afraid because it was the Father's good pleasure to give us the kingdom. And so, Lord, we celebrate that fact this morning that you have given us the kingdom. And, Lord, we... We now pursue it. We look to you, Lord God, that we might be or that we might be those who love you, who obey you, who who don't spend our time gazing into the sky, but we gaze toward our objective. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every living person. And God, we do that. We, we, we embrace that, Lord God, so that you will find us doing what you commanded us when you arrive, Lord God. Help us to be faithful to the end. Help us to endure, to overcome. We thank you, Lord Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to ask the elders to come forward. We're going to close now by receiving the Lord's Supper. I'm just going to launch right in and read you our, our passage that we read when we take the Lord's Supper together. And even in this passage, it's really interesting. We have an indicator of the, of the end that is coming. This passage says in... 1 Corinthians 11:23 For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and he said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me 
And in the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do it as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Listen to this word. Listen to this word. It's a reminder of what we just talked about. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you you proclaim the Lord's death. How long? Until he comes. Until he comes. And so today as you gather around the Lord's table, I want you to come and say, Lord, thank you. Thank you for this reminder of your brokenness, of of your pain, your suffering, your your all-redeeming love that brought me out of darkness into your marvelous light until that day when I see you face to face. And God, God, as we take this remembrance, we ask you as the collected body of Christ, we ask you, even so, even so, come Lord Jesus. Does anybody have something so important going on that you wouldn't be okay with Jesus coming today? Anybody too busy for that? Oh man. What a great day that's going to be. So let's pray and then you can join us at the table and we'll receive this. Father, thank you so much for your sacrifice of your son, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for your pain, your suffering, your rejection, the way you were mocked, the way you were beaten. God, we ask that you would help us to see you in your glory and that our hearts would be thrilled with the idea that we will continue to feast on you. We will continue to feast on you until that day when you join us around the table at the marriage supper of the lamb and you drink of the fruit of the vine with us. Thank you, Jesus, for that day that's coming. Thank you, God. Lord, be with us now and help us. Lord, I I just, I indicated several times, Lord, that there are people here that do not know you, Lord God. God, will you please do them the grace of making that very clear to them. Lord, if there's someone here that needs to to take you seriously, repent and follow you, Lord Jesus. God, I pray that by, uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit, they would be given faith and the courage to act on that faith right now, Lord God. To come and find Pastor David, myself, one of the other leaders, Lord, and say, hey, tell me what this is all about. Tell me what I have to do to be one of Christ's. Lord, work in their heart. Don't let them get away one more day, Lord God. Don't let them get one more closer to the day where they will stand before your throne, Lord God, naked with nothing to cover themselves, no excuses, no works of righteousness that will be sufficient to cover them. Lord, let them be free. Let them uh, embrace the beauty of your gospel, Lord God, and out of love for you, serve you all the days of their lives. 